You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. God was rightfully angry with the leaders of Israel. The leaders of Israel had been unfaithful to God and unfaithful to the people that they were supposed to be leading in the ways of God. And now, thousands of Israelites had been taken captive by the pagan Babylonians. It was about 585 B.C. And God had appointed a message to these unfaithful shepherds, these unfaithful leaders, through his prophet Ezekiel. Although we're not going to stay in Ezekiel this morning, if you care to, you can join me in Ezekiel chapter 34. I'd like to read this passage before we get into our study of John chapter 10 this morning. <clears throat> but I want to begin by reading this pointed, even painful rebuke of the shepherds of Israel by God through his prophet Ezekiel, as found in Ezekiel chapter 34. Let me begin by reading the first 10 verses. By the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel writes, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you rule over them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there is no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed the sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hands and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. You know, that's a hair-raising hair passage for anybody who reads it. I think especially those of us who have the responsibility to be spiritual leaders, it is an extremely sobering passage. Shepherd stands for those who are to spiritually lead and feed the sheep of God. Now as painful as this pointed passage is, thankfully there's more to it. Because along with this rebuke, strong rebuke, God also gives a promise that encourages us that builds hope, that blows hope into our wounded souls. Listen now as I continue to read in Ezekiel chapter 10, halfway through verse 10, Ezekiel 34, halfway through verse 10, it says, God says, I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. 
For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then dropping down to verse 22. I will rescue, God says, I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will set up over them one shepherd. Listen, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. What a glorious promise that in these dark days of Israel, days of exile, the sheep having been abused by shepherds who are more concerned with themselves than they are the sheep of God, God gives this glorious promise that one day, one day, he would send a David, a descendant of David, to be the shepherd who will come and seek God's sheep. Join me now in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John for our guests. Uh, we've been working through the Gospel of John for the last seven or eight months. And today we're in this glorious passage that is a favorite with many Christians. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. In this passage, <clears throat> Jesus is going to contrast bad shepherds with himself. And in this passage, in verse 11, Jesus declares... I am the good shepherd. Now with the backdrop I just read to you from Ezekiel 34, do you see the significance of Jesus' declaration? That these people in that crowd would have known that story of Ezekiel 34. It's still the era shortly after the Feast of the Tabernacles. Jesus is still in Jerusalem. And those of you that were here last week as we studied John chapter 9, you may recall that Jesus has given a blind man's sight. That there was a man there in Jerusalem who, although an adult, had never seen a moment in his life. He was born blind. And God appointed that man to be blind and appointed him to be healed on that day so that Jesus Christ would be glorified. And Jesus Christ gave this blind beggar not only physical sight, but spiritual sight. And in John 9, we read about the conversion of this man, born blind, now seeing not only with his physical eyes, but with the eyes of his heart, where he believed and worshipped Jesus Christ. Now one would think that a shepherd, after God's heart, would rejoice in that. But the shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel in the days of Jesus, not only did they mistreat this man born blind, but because of his honoring of Jesus Christ, because of his belief in Jesus Christ, they kicked him out of the synagogue. They kicked this poor man out of the synagogue, broke off fellowship and teaching, and Jesus sought him out. Jesus sought him out. The shepherd sought the sheep. And it is there in this setting, it is in that exact setting, that Jesus stood in front of people that believed in him and people that were ready to kill him. And he announced clearly, passionately, he said, I am the good shepherd. 
Amazingly, in the same passage, Jesus makes another bold pronouncement that we will be able to treat only briefly this morning, and that is when Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. Have you found John chapter 10? I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll start with the good shepherd, and then as we have time, we'll talk about, I am the door of the sheep. But as I read this, I want you to remember the context. John 10 is a whole passage of contrast. It's a passage of contrast where Jesus is rebuking the bad shepherds and announcing himself as the good shepherd. So you keep that in mind. You keep that paradigm, that picture framework in mind as I begin now in chapter 10, verse 1. I'm going to read the first six verses and then drop down to verse 10. Truly I say to you, Jesus is speaking, truly, truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hears his voice, hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And now if you'll join me in verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Bad shepherds. What's so bad about bad shepherds? What's so bad about bad shepherds? In summary, I would say these three things. Bad shepherds have bad motives. They they don't care about the welfare of the sheep. They care about their own welfare. Um, They're not shepherding for what they can give, how they can serve. They're into shepherding for what they can get, how they can be served. What did we read in Ezekiel 34? In Ezekiel 34, back then, 600 years before, Jesus said that the shepherds of Israel were out for what they could get. They were feeding themselves. They were fleecing the flock instead of caring for the flock, feeding the flock, and sacrificing for it. When these hirelings, these bad shepherds, these fake shepherds, faced danger, when the flock faced danger, when the wolf would come, figuratively speaking, they fled, wanting to save their own skin, even if it meant the sheep of God, the people of God, to be scattered. 
Bad shepherds have bad motives. They don't care about the sheep. They care about themselves. Bad shepherds have bad methods. Jesus uses pretty strong language here, but it's very similar to Ezekiel 34, isn't it? <clears throat> He's saying that bad shepherds, <clears throat> excuse me, bad shepherds are harsh. They're spiritually violent. They assume authority outside the boundaries of God's word. They assume authority they've never been given. How did Jesus begin this passage, this passage of contrasts? Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. He steals, he uses violence to get what he wants. And then in verse 10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. And you say, well, how would these leaders, how would these shepherds of Israel steal, kill, and destroy? They kill, steal, and destroy by their bad message. They have a bad motive. They have bad methods. They have a bad message. The shepherds of Israel of old and the shepherds of Israel in Jesus' day had a message that not only excluded Christ, but opposed Christ, despised Christ. They thought that somehow you could come to God without Christ. By the way, just by way of a side here, I think to appreciate what's going on here, as best we can, it's good to go back and try to stand in the sandals of first century Jews. When we say the word Pharisee today, how do we normally say that word? If we say the word Pharisee or Pharisaical, <clears throat> we, we say it with a snide. Don't, I mean, if, if someone is snotty and snooty and uppity spiritually, we say, oh, he's, he's so Pharisaical. And we say it that way, don't we? We, we say it with disgust. He's, he's so Pharisaical. In the first century, Pharisees were some of the most admired people in the culture. There was a popular saying in Jesus' day that said, if only two people enter heaven, one will be a scribe and the other a Pharisee. They were the type of people in the community the parents said to their kids, I hope you're like him when you grow up. You know, because they were seen as the super spiritual. I mean, these people, they keep God's law. I mean, they are so good. Surely God will let them into heaven because they're so good. These are good people, moral, upstanding citizens. And they preached a message of attainment, of achievement. Be good enough for God. Why can't you be good like me? Now, if you think I'm making this up, do you remember verse 34 in chapter 9 that we looked at last week? I mean, just park there for a minute. Look at 934. This is the man born blind who is beginning to commend Jesus Christ to these shepherds, these spiritual leaders of Israel. He's beginning to commend Jesus to them. And he's pushing on them a little bit, you have to admit. But in verse 34, they say to him, listen to this, this is a Pharisee talking to this man born blind who now sees. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you will teach us? And they cast him out. Do you, do you see what's going on there? You were born in sin, unlike us. And you think you have the right to teach us anything? Who do you think you are? You're not good like us. And these Pharisees had a message that praised the person of achievement. And in doing so, they 
stole and killed and destroyed. They stole and killed and destroyed the souls of men and women and boys and girls. With this message that you can be good enough for God if you're more like us. And they gave a message that led people to hell itself. Jesus in Luke, Jesus said in Matthew, it's Matthew 23, verse 13, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. That's exactly what they were trying to do with this man previously blind. They were killing and destroying, stealing souls with their message that focused on human achievement instead of sin and the need for God's grace through his given Messiah, Jesus Christ. And you know, you think about this, and it's not exactly the same, but there are a lot of parallels in our day. I'm not going to stay here very long, but <clears throat> there's, a, there's, a lot, there's a lot of preachers and teachers out there who are preaching and teaching Christless messages. And it's just Christianese. It's just moralism. Be a good person. Be a better person. You can be a better person. Three tips to being a better person. And Christ is never mentioned. Sin is never mentioned. The need for Christ is never mentioned. And they're, they're subtly giving people this impression that you can be good enough for God. Just be a good person. Just be a better person. Just be nice. And there's no talk of sin. Sin is unpopular. Why would you talk about sin? People aren't going to come to your church if you talk about sin. That there's no talk about sin, the need for repentance, the need for God's grace through Jesus Christ. And there are false shepherds, even in our day, bad shepherds in our day, who are thieves and robbers, stealing, killing, destroying the souls of people with Christless messages. But you're ready to move on to better things, aren't you? Why are bad shepherds bad? They've got bad motives. Bad methods, they have bad messages. So let's talk about the Good Shepherd. What's so good about the Good Shepherd? <laughs> well, there's a lot. I, I think we ought to stay here for a couple hours. What's so good about, uh, yeah, I won't keep you. Um, what's so good about the Good Shepherd? Just, just for clarification here, right at the beginning. Jesus did not say, I'm like a Good Shepherd. Jesus didn't say, I'm a Good Shepherd. Jesus said, literally, he said, I am the shepherd, the good one. <laughs> he is the good shepherd that God had promised, even back in the days of Ezekiel. Jesus Christ is saying, I am the fulfillment of God's promise. He promised he would send a David, a descendant of David, to come and gather the sheep. I am him. I am he. I am the good shepherd. Look at the quality. Some of you are taking notes. I'll try to emphasize each of these. There are so many qualities of the good shepherd. I would begin with this. The good shepherd owns his sheep. He's no hireling. He's not in it for the money. He's not in it for what he can get out of it. Jesus is the good shepherd. He came to give and to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He says here at the beginning that he enters the door as the legitimate owner. Thieves climb up over the walls. The, the, the owner of the sheep, the true shepherd, the good shepherd... He walks right in the front door. He walks in the door of the sheepfold. Jesus Christ is saying, I am the rightful owner of the sheep. I am God's anointed one. I am the Messiah. I have come as the owner of the sheep. My father gave me an inheritance. He gave me an inheritance of a flock of sheep 
that I would die for. And I walk straight through the door of the sheepfold to my sheep. And he's claiming his messiahship, his mission to come and to claim his inheritance through his death on the cross. He's saying, I am the good shepherd. I own my sheep. Look at verse 14. Jesus says he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. It's a word of relationship. <clears throat> Let me speak to my brothers and sisters in Christ here. Some of you have a proclivity. You're, you're prone to depression, discouragement. Some of us not so prone, but we all go through times. We all go through times of discouragement, disappointment. And, and maybe you've had times where you felt like, does anybody really understand me? Does anybody really know me? And, and sometimes it just feels lonely in life, doesn't it? Like, who gets me? Who understands me? Who knows my heart? And Jesus says here, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. Not just identification, but he knows everything about us. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. Think about that. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. He not only knows your name and your family, he knows your fears, he knows your joys, he knows your temptations, he knows your victories, he knows your failures, he knows everything about your strengths, your weaknesses, and he loves you. <laughs> isn't, isn't that amazing? Why don't we let people into our lives? Why, why are we so careful to not let people know everything about us? Because if they really knew us, if people really knew us, they knew the ugly side, they knew the weaknesses, the failures in my life, they would reject me. People wouldn't want to be around me. So we always want to put up a good front, right? We always want to have the best foot forward so people won't reject us. And yet the good shepherd says, I, I know my sheep. I know my, I know my sheep. And he loves us. He's not rejecting us. He knows you, my fellow Christian. Verse 3, we saw that he calls his sheep. He calls his sheep. He calls us by name. Now, just a short theological lesson here. Sometimes in the Bible, there's what's known as a general call. Whosoever will may come. And it's a call that everyone can hear with their physical ears. But sometimes people hear with their heart. And they don't just turn a deaf ear, we say. They actually respond. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. We call it an effectual call. It's effectual. It does something. That when Jesus calls his sheep by name, they hear, they hear, and they respond. They, they come, they come, they come to him, they follow. And Jesus is talking about my sheep hear my voice effectually. That's what Paul was writing about in Romans 8, verse 30, when he says, those who, pre those who he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. The good shepherd calls his sheep, and the good shepherd leads his sheep. Isn't that a comfort? We were talking in our life group this past week, briefly, about fixing our eyes on Jesus. As we run the race marked out for us, we're following the good shepherd. The good shepherd will never lead us astray. I mean, you know... You wonder sometimes, is this the right road? I mean, I've been lost a couple times recently by the GPS. <laughs> but you realize the good shepherd never, ever, ever leads us astray. He leads us down the paths of righteousness. 
But there's one quality of the good shepherd in this passage that is repeated more than any other. Did you notice it? There's one quality of the good shepherd that's really good. It's the goodest. Did you notice what it was? It's four times in this passage. You, you look. It's in verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18. What is the goodest thing about the good shepherd? Do you see it? It says he lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. Now let's park there for a while. That's a glorious thing to think about. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What do we know about him laying down his life for his sheep? Well, one thing is his, he lays down his life intentionally. The, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was no accident. In fact, in verse 18, there's a couple little words there that's easy to miss. Jesus talks about the charge his father gave him, the charge his father gave him, the mission, the assignment his father gave him. When did Jesus get that assignment? When did Jesus get that charge, that mission? In eternity past, before the foundation of the world. The Bible even talks about Jesus being the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The death of Jesus on the cross was no accident. It was planned by God. It was planned by God in eternity past. That God planned for his son to come, to live, and to die on that cross for his sheep. It was all part of the plan. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, the good shepherd laying down his life for us, was very intentional. It was pre-thought, pre-planned. I was thinking about this and how Jesus could have gotten out of it if he wanted to. But it was not only intentional, it was willing. The death of Jesus Christ was a willing sacrifice. He was not a helpless victim not the helpless victim of the mob or some tragic martyr. Jesus said, I lay down my life. It, it was willing, volitional. Jesus said, right before the crucifixion in Matthew 26, 53, he said, if I wanted to, I could ask my father to send 12 legions of angels. Now, if I'm getting my Roman history right, I think that means about 72,000 angels. <laughs> Uh, I don't know that Jesus was trying to be specific about the number, but he said 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels. I mean, angels are fearsome beings. They're not these little cute little cherub things you buy in the gift store. I mean, they're fearsome. They're, they're, they're terrifying. When people see angels, the tendency is to fall down on your face. And, and Jesus said as he was being threatened with death, listen, if I wanted to, if I wanted to, I could ask my father right now, Father, send 12 legions of angels to rescue me. And the father would have done it. But Jesus didn't do that. He was willingly giving up his life. He says, I lay down my life. I choose to lay down my life. And another quality of the death of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, is that he gave his life. He laid it down substitutionally. There's a little word in verse 11 that you must not miss. Do you see it? It's three letters long. It's the word for in English. For. It means in the place of or on behalf of. Jesus, listen, my friends, so many people miss this part of the death of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ was not some morality lesson. I mean, I hear people saying, 
Well, Jesus laid down his life. He sacrificed his life. He was showing us that we should be kind and thoughtful of others and we should give our lives for other people. Like give us some morality lesson. Now, now I'm sure there's some takeaways there. But the point of Jesus' death on the cross was that it was substitutionary. It's hard to find a shorter word. Vicarious, how's that? You help me later if you come up with an easier word. (laughs) But we know what a substitute is, right? If you've ever been to school, you know what a substitute is. Sometimes a teacher's sick or going to a conference and, and we get a substitute teacher. It's a teacher who stands in the place of the regular teacher. Jesus Christ is... In my place, condemned he stood. He was my substitute hanging on that cross. That Jesus Christ died the death that I should have died. I earned the Father's wrath. I did. I earned the Father's wrath from all my rebellion against the high King of Heaven who made me. And Jesus Christ said, I'll take his condemnation. I'll take his hell and her hell, and his hell. And he hung there on the cross as the substitute for all of his sheep in my place. Condemned, he stood. Willingly, willingly, intentionally, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then you read in verse 18 too, 18 also, He said that he has authority to take it up again. I missed that when I first worked on my notes for this sermon and I had to go back and rewrite that part. And I was thinking about it as I was mowing yesterday, thoughts while mowing. (laughs) Where Jesus says, I have the authority to take it up again. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying he has the authority to come alive again, to be resurrected. Jesus Christ came alive on the third day. He's six months away from the cross when he says this. And he's already telling that he's going to rise from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead never to die again. He's the eternal good shepherd. He is the good shepherd who always lives for us. Back to my mowing. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know what, Larry? No one could hear me. The mower drowned it out. (laughs) You're an interim pastor. I've had the privilege of serving as one of your pastors for the last 37 years, and I'm an interim pastor. I am. I'm I'm here for the interim. I'm I'm here for a while. (laughs) I'm here for a while. I'm here for a season. And one day the Lord will call me home, and I won't be your pastor anymore. I'll I'll be in heaven. And, And you know what? The same thing is true for my fellow pastors here. I mean, we're sad to see Nate and Robin and the kids move away. We love them. And yet we know it's for their good and the good of God's kingdom that he go to the pastor's college. But, you know, times like this in the life of a church, they can feel a little disconcerting, you know, like, oh, we're losing one of our pastors. We love Pastor Nate. We love Robin. We love the kids. And it feels a little unsettling. Or when you come to my funeral, maybe some of you will feel it's unsettling. I don't know. (laughs) But you, you get my point here? Every pastor we've ever had, every pastor we have, every pastor we ever will have is an interim pastor, interim shepherd. That's what pastor means. Pastor is just a Latin of shepherd. All of your pastors, we love you. We want to serve you as the Lord gives us energy and time, but we're all interim. 
And as you go through changes, some of you kids in this church, you're going to be alive 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now. <clears throat> I want you to remember that the head pastor, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, is eternal. He never changes. The head of this church never changes. Jesus Christ, he's the good shepherd. So when you look at us, your pastors, how about looking over our shoulder and seeing Christ? And you see Christ, and you say, that's, that's the one we count on. These guys are just servants, under-shepherds. They're the chief shepherd, the good shepherd. The good shepherd never changes. He's eternal in that way. So we've talked about bad shepherds. We've talked about the good shepherd. Just briefly now, what do we know? What is true about true sheep? Jesus talks about sheep here. What, what is true of his true sheep? Just real briefly. True sheep know the good shepherd. That's verse 14. True sheep hear the shepherd's voice. Verses 3, verses 16. By the way, on that, they not only hear the voice of the good shepherd, but when the true sheep hear false shepherds, when they hear bad shepherds, they're discerning enough to know that ain't right. Now, I'm not saying none of us can ever be fooled briefly, but a characteristic of the true sheep of Christ is that we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Word of God, and by being trained in the Word of God, the Holy Spirit in us, applying us, applying it to our lives, he gives us discernment that when someone comes teaching things that are out of accord with the Word of God, we have the discernment by the Holy Spirit's power to say, that's not right. That's false. That's a bad shepherd. I'm not going to follow him. I'm going to follow the people, the shepherds that are following the good shepherd. True sheep hear the good shepherd, rejecting the message of the bad shepherd. True sheep follow the good shepherd, verse 4. And glorious, verse 16 True sheep unite around the good shepherd. Verse 16 in John 10. Did you catch that verse? Where Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What's he talking about? Gentiles. He's saying, I love my Jewish sheep, but I've got Gentile sheep too. And I'm going to call them. And the barrier walls are broken down. We don't have Jewish sections and Gentile sections in the kingdom of God. We're one new race. One new race. The Christian race. There's no races distinct from one another. We're united around Jesus Christ. We're one brand new kind of race, the Christian race. We are united around Jesus Christ, no matter what our race, our ethnicity, our background, our first language. We are one flock in Christ. Glorious, isn't it? And now briefly, what do we know about Jesus saying, I am the door of the sheep? In Palestine, this is probably still true in certain cultures, um, but in Palestine in the first century, whether they're in the village or out in the wilderness, they would have sheep folds, sheep pens. And let me talk, I think Jesus talks about both here. I think the first section of John 10, he's probably talking about the village sheep pen where multiple shepherds would keep their sheep at night. But the latter talk about the sheep fold, he's probably talking about the ones out in the wilderness where a shepherd out in the wilderness, there was all kind of danger. It's hilly out there. The sheep could wander off and fall off a cliff. There's wild animals. Uh, there's all kind of things, poisonous plants. There's all kind of dangers to the sheep. So at nighttime, the shepherds would build these rock circular sheep folds, build the wall maybe waist high, and then they would get branches, especially thorny branches, and kind of line the top of the wall. And that was to discourage wild animals or thieves to break in and steal the sheep. But they would leave a section open, a door. It wasn't, it wasn't a literal door with hinges and stuff. It was just an opening. And 
when Jesus says, I am the door, where do you think the shepherds spent the night? They were the door. They were the door. And so the shepherd would get his sheep in there at night, and then he would either prop himself up against the wall or maybe lie down in that opening. And if any wild animal or any thief tried to get to the sheep, they had to cross his body. And he would rise up and protect the sheep from a thief or a wild animal. A good shepherd would do that. And so Jesus saying, I am the door. Now when he says, I am the door, he's making an exclusive claim, isn't he? He doesn't say, I'm a door. He's saying, I'm the door. The, the, the sheepfold here represents the kingdom of God, the collection of the saved, uh, the people of God. He's saying, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, if you want to enter into the place of salvation, you have to come through me. I am the door. In fact, Jesus would say a little bit later when we get to John chapter 14, Jesus is going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, no one comes to the Father except through me. Same picture. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that was the message of the apostles from then on, that Jesus Christ was the only way to salvation. He wasn't one way. He was the only way of salvation. If you want to get to God, if you want to get to heaven, if you want to receive salvation, you have to come through Jesus Christ. He is God the Father's appointed means of salvation. He's the door. We could talk more about that, but we're out of time here. So what's the good news? What is the good news? What's a person supposed to do when they hear Jesus saying, I am the door, when they hear Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd? Well, Jesus says in verse 9, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And so Jesus promises, if you hear my voice, if you hear my calling of you, and you enter in through me, the door, you will be saved. You will be saved from the from sin, you will be saved from the penalty of sin, hell itself. You will be saved from the wrath of God. You will be saved. And then he says, so one of the benefits is salvation. Then he says, he will come in and out and find pasture. And he's saying, not only will I give salvation, but similar, but a little bit different, he says, I'll give safety. Now I think there is, I call it the safety of the gospel. Sometimes we think of the gospel as what gets us saved. But the gospel isn't what just gets us saved. The gospel isn't the porch to the house. The gospel is the house. That's where we live. And, and you say, why would, God be, why would God be happy with me today? Why, why would God accept me today as a Christian? You're already a Christian. Why, why would he be happy with you today? Because you've had a good day? He accepts you today because of Jesus Christ. Why, why would God be happy with you on Tuesday this week? Why would, he, why would he accept you on Tuesday? Because of Jesus Christ. Why The same would be true Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. God accepts you. You are accepted by God. On your best days and your worst days, you're accepted by God because of Jesus Christ. There is a safety in the gospel. Not only initial salvation, but a safety that I'm, I'm safe. I don't have to live in fear. I don't have to live about what people think of me because whatever he thinks of me is enough. And he sees me as he sees his son, Jesus Christ. 
I'm accepted by God, the safety of the gospel. And then in verse 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. There's a sermon right there, isn't there? I have come. That's the reason he came. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Salvation, safety, and satisfaction. This verse, John 10.10, has been abused by prosperity preachers for years. And there are prosperity preachers that preach this verse as if, you know, God's going to give you the abundant life. You're going to have fancy cars, a big house, lots of money. And they cheapen this verse. They cheapen this verse with their promises of material wealth. Now, if God's entrusted you with material wealth, use it wisely. Steward it well. But that's not what this verse is talking about. Jesus himself said that uh, life doesn't consist with the abundance of things. <laughs> so why would prosperity preachers not preach that verse? Jesus is talking about a soul satisfaction. No matter what happens to me, no matter what I have or don't have, I have Christ. Didn't we sing that this morning? We have Christ. Sometimes we sing, all I have is Christ. And in Him, there is soul satisfaction. At your right hand, at your right hand, God, there's pleasure forevermore. Psalm 16. That I'm satisfied in Him alone. No matter what you have, don't have, no matter what you're going through, painful or pleasurable, Christ is your satisfaction. How, how does Psalm 23 begin? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. <laughs> he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. No matter what life is like for you, you can have a soul satisfaction. The good shepherd brings that to us. He gives that to us. So in these closing moments, let me ask you, have you heard the voice of the good shepherd? Have you heard him? And if you've heard his voice, have you obeyed by entering in? Have you come? Are you following the good shepherd? Let me read to you again, verses 9 and 10. I am the door, Jesus said. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So do you, have you believed in Jesus, the good shepherd? Are you following him?